you ever go to the gym or talk to your friends while they are on the way to the gym, you hear them talk about leg day. Leg day is a tough day. You're going to throw a lot of weight around for a good hour and going to expend a lot of energy and people are, you know, maybe they're happy when they're finished. But when they say it's leg day, it's not like they're saying, hey, it's free ice cream day at the mall. No, leg day is where you do the work. And it's a lot different than, say, you know, arm day or back day or neck day or whatever. So around here, our equivalent of leg day is doing anything about Baltimore. Well, in a way, it's kind of too easy. But in the other, and the flip, the flip side is when we get to Baltimore, if we do stories about the Baltimore or anything in the Baltimore area, that's kind of a leg day for us because they're kind of hard to get through because they're so predictable, they're so plentiful. So for us to do a story about Baltimore must mean there's something really, really, really stupid and crazy going on down there that could really edify us or illustrate for us what's happening in other parts of the country where they're still doing a better job of being in denial, deceit, and delusion. Because everything that happens in Baltimore, it's like they're so far past denial, deceit, and delusion. They're just like throwing their arms up and saying, listen, we know this is a dark and dangerous and dirty chocolate city. That is pretty much beyond redemption. So don't ask me any questions about it or you're going to force me to lie and that's not going to be pretty. Hi, this is Colin Flaherty. I'm the author of Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. Available on Smashwords, not Amazon. Guess why? But it might be back on Amazon pretty soon. The printed version of it. So stay tuned for that. Ditto for White Girl Bleed A Lot just came out on audiobook. Man, one thing about doing an audiobook, you learn how many truckers there are in this country, how many commuters there are, and how many people that just like listening to things instead of reading things. Yeah, people still want their paperback copy. You know, when I when 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 we talk about don't make the black kids angry, it's available for ebooks at a place separate from Amazon, but a lot of people are saying, "Colin, I want that good old-fashioned paperback book or paper book in front of me." But uh, the audiobooks are pretty fun too. Uh, audiobooks are, you know, I get I get a kick out of audiobooks when I listen to an audiobook of a book I've already read. Especially unlike good old Colin, especially if you get like a professional actor that can get every single note out of every single syllable. It's really kind of amazing to listen to these people and they can really help your own diction as well. Anyway, let's get back to the stated purpose of this podcast. Here we talk about black violence, black dysfunction, black mayhem, black chaos, all wildly out of proportion, and how so many people are in denial, deceit, and delusion about it. They wrap themselves in this cocoon of denial, deceit, and delusion, and they just pretend it's not happening to anybody in their home, in their neighborhood, in their country. And if they get a little bit lucky, reality doesn't come along and, and shred their tissue-thin cocoon of denial, deceit, and delusion. That's what we do here. We shred that denial, deceit, and delusion. We document, we show how this stuff is happening day in, day out, all over the country, how so many people are so freaked out about talking about it. 
except when they're talking about black people being the victims of the criminal justice system. Oh, yeah, we see that. And we do all that without racism, without rancor, without apologies. Now, we're going to get to Baltimore in a minute, but why don't we start out in a place that, man, I, I really wish I had more people up in Madison, Wisconsin. We do a lot of stories out there. But Madison's a university town, University of Wisconsin. It's a state capital. That's kind of a double whammy. And it's known as one of the most liberal cities in America, along with Berkeley, maybe a couple of other places. But there's a lot of bad business in Madison. Oh, yeah, there are fellas in Madison. They're doing a lot of bad business, a lot of argy-bargy, whether it's home invasions, murders, robberies, whatever, stealing your car, stealing somebody else's car, coming into your house. Yeah, the fellas are, let's just say they're overrepresented in the criminal justice system by a vast majority because the people who, who really love Madison, the people who are attached to the university, the people who are attached to the state capital, mostly white people, they consider themselves, you know, gentle, older, hippie types. They can't get their minds around this this whole violence, this whole robbery, this whole home invasion thing. They can't get their minds around the fact that somebody would be targeting their car to steal it. And they can't get their minds around the fact that the fellas are wildly overrepresented in the criminal justice system, as they might say. They can't get their mind around the fact that even though they're down with the cause, the cause is not down with them. Why don't we start out in in Madison with a guy who just says, hey, this guy's been, bro he broke into my house. And when he broke into my house, he had a long record. He was out on bail for breaking into somebody else's house. What's up with that? Well, we're going to go to the Madison in that county, not Madison County, whatever they call that county up there. We're going to go to the district attorney up there. We're going to let him tell us what's up with that. It's the criminal justice system picking on the fellas for no damn reason whatsoever. And no, that ain't going to happen on his watch. A man who had his home burglarized several months ago said when he saw this mugshot of DeMonte Tillman for burglarizing another home, he was frustrated. And Jamie Perez found some answers for him and others who have been Tillman's alleged victim. She tells us why he is still on the streets, Jamie. Well, Tillman actually just turned 17 this year, meaning he can now be tried as an adult. Right now, he has nine open cases dating back to April. Today, I asked the district attorney how and why, after being charged with multiple felonies and misdemeanors, Tillman is still out there making more victims of his crimes. Burglar came in through the front door at about 11.30 and he walked over to this area. He picked up my wife's wallet and phone and purse. Brett Sprecher says he had his home burglarized in May by 17-year-old DeMonte Tillman. Sprecher wasn't Tillman's first victim or his last. Misdemeanor theft, hit and run of an attendant vehicle and felony bail jumping. Okay, so they let him out again. Here's the next one. He's charged with obstructing an officer, felony bail jumping three times, and then here we go again for the, the last one, operating a motor vehicle without owner's consent, felony bail jumping. Sprecher said he's frustrated to see Tillman's charges adding up when he felt he shouldn't have been let out of jail after he was given several chances to correct his behavior. After the second or third time, 
they should have made it very hard for him to get out of jail. District Attorney Ishmael Ozan explained that even though he has made recommendations that would make it more difficult, the decision rests in the judge's hands each time. In seven of those nine instances, we have actually asked at initial appearance uh, for cash bail. Uh, we did not get any cash bail until the last uh, case. Cash bond is now set at $1,000 per case for his most recent arrest for suspicion of burglarizing a home last week. Before that, Tillman was able to get out on signature bond every time. How many times are they going to give the guy? In the adult system, a court commissioner or a judge would decide whether a person gets bail, whether that's a recognizance uh, bond, basically a signature bond, or and or what other conditions they're going to have uh, as a condition of their release. Sprecher said he hopes this cash bond is enough this time to keep him off the streets so no more victims have to go through what he went through. Until something happens where he's stuck in jail for a long time or there's consequences, nothing's going to change. Let's do one other Madison story that just popped up yesterday or the day before. All these, we, Almost all the stories we do are just... They're fresh. They're 24, 48 hours just as soon as I get to them. It's amazing how many great stories we just, I put in my file to say, I got to get to that story. It's really important. I do a video, you know, I, I make the raw video getting ready to transport it here and I get back to it and it's a week or two old and it's like, you know what? That thing's like fish. Three days and it stinks. So we do f- stories that are fresh. Anyway, we've got to, we got to, we had what was kind of an unremarkable story from a reporter in Madison named Dana, Danica Lewis. Now, Dana did a big story, one of these, believe me, when you do a story in TV that's like four and a half minutes, no, we're not going to hear the four and a half minute story. We're going to hear like the 30 second introduction. But when you do a story like four and a half minutes long, that is basically like uh, the television equi- equivalent of war and peace. So in Madison, Wisconsin, the fellas, yes, the fellas, though we will not hear that in Danica Lewis's report, the fellas go around looking for people who are turning their car on, you know, from the house or else either, no, I think the car actually stays locked when it's when you do that, but everybody's cold up there, so maybe you go outside, start your car, turn the heater on, come back in the house. The U.S. Senator from Delaware, Chris Coons, did that two years ago. He came out. His car was gone. Yes, it was a group of fellas who stole his car. Though you'd you'd probably have to waterboard him for several hours to get him to admit to that. Anyway, so she does this story, and it's about car, stolen cars are spiking in Madison. And one of our viewers by the name of, I think this is Nam De Plume, Rockheart, a lot of a lot of people did this on 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 Twitter. Rockhart goes in there and he goes. Uh, um, he he kind of he kind of wanted to know. He says like, okay, you identified who the perps were. They were suspects were primarily teenagers. And he asked Danica, Danica, was there any other pronounced characteristic of the perps? Dana didn't really like that. A lot of people started asking her that question, especially when she started getting a little bit snarky on it with us. And what she said was, the most common characteristics of the suspects were that they were teens who reoffended. Actually, she never said that in her story. She never talked about reoffending. We're going to see why that's important in a minute. The same group was known to police and stealing cars that in another one, she kind of implied that 
the people who were questioning her, who were asking why her station wasn't reporting that the people doing these crimes were black people, she kind of got snarky and implied that it was some kind of conspiracy theory that people were floating around. Oh, no, nobody liked that. But here's the thing, Danica. Nobody's hiding the fact. Two things. One, that the fellas are the ones responsible for crime and Madison. And two, the district attorney wants to make sure instead of arresting the fellas because they are victims of white racism and the sheriff's down with this too, or the deputy, you know, the, sheriff, the cop, the chief of police is, he wants to make sure that we don't mess with the fellas, we don't put them in jail, we find another way to treat them for this illness caused by racism that's forcing them to go out and lead a life of crime and victimize all those clueless white people in Madison. So let's hear Danica. This video is not from this morning, but from a couple of weeks ago in McFarland. That's when a 17-year-old allegedly driving a stolen vehicle while under the influence hit a minivan head-on, sending five people to the hospital. Despite the warnings, car thefts continue to be a serious problem in and around Madison. Danica Lewis has a familiar but necessary reminder for all of us. All right, Danica. You know, it's just a regular old story, but you, know, you drew first blood when you tried to pretend the fact that the criminal that a the race of the criminals was totally insignificant in Madison that has nothing to do with anything well why don't you go down and ask your district attorney what he thinks about that county leaders say jail time might not always be the best option tonight unveiling plans to move into the planning stages to build a new restorative justice facility in the city gabriella becara has the story Dane County District Attorney Ishmael Ozan says restorative justice begins by getting down to the root cause of what drives the behavior in the criminal justice system in addressing crisis, which he says requires judgment, forward thinking, and thoughtfulness. We really have to start thinking about how can we help people in crisis? And that's where Dane County District Attorney Ishmael Ozan says a community justice center would be beneficial. And actually, I think it would be incredible if we could get a community justice center because I believe that would put positive structure in and around our youth and help us get uh, a better... Uh, ability to address juvenile issues that we're seeing right now in our community. Ozan says a center would impact the entire system, making it easier to connect people with resources. It could be an incredible place for some public-private partnerships in and around mental health, in and around homelessness. As we look at really the crime spree uh, um, that is taking over our communities now with the stolen vehicles and home break-ins, we need to look at who these individuals are and what's driving those behaviors and try to address it. Dane County Sheriff David Mahoney says he supports Ozan's cutting-edge approach to restorative justice. We've been partners trying to find a smarter way of addressing our criminal justice system more so than just locking people up. If we could do something there to then find a permanent place in the community for them and use that as sort of an emergency, um, you know, taking somebody out of crisis, we would get them to a better place and we would be better for it. Tonight's event also doubled as a birthday celebration for Ozan, where he announced he will be running for re-election. He was appointed as district attorney back in 2010. So they've got some smart people in Madison. Okay, you have to be smart to go to the University of Wisconsin. But just because you're smart hard enough to get into the University of Wisconsin, that doesn't mean you're smart in everything. So there's not one person on that campus, not one person in public life in Madison 
who recognizes that it's two, this coin has two sides on it. If you're saying that, hey, we got to make sure we don't put all the black people in prison, we got to give them restorative justice. It's a racial thing. If we have the, the DA and the, 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 the sheriff, it was the sheriff, saying that, isn't the same side of the same, isn't the flip side of the same coin that the fellas are responsible for all the crime? I mean, that's hard to walk away from. You might want to walk away from it. That guy who was a victim of those burglaries. I mean, that's your average Madison res uh, uh, resident. Wow, the fellows are out there committing crimes? I had no idea. They let them go for no damn reason? <laughs> Nobody told me this at the last block party meeting we had. All they said at my block party meeting was that, hey, have you read the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander? It talks about, about black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism. And that's why so many black people are in jail and in prison for no damn reason whatsoever, other than maybe they did a nonviolent joyride on a car. People talk like that. Yeah, they talk like that in my presence. This is all wrong. Okay, you ready for leg day? How dare you? So right now, Baltimore is in the throes of one of these spasms of self-examination. The guy who worked at a YMCA, young guy in his 30s, he was, you know, he was your, he was your classic, everybody liked him guy. I think I mentioned him on the podcast the other day, but it's blown up since then. Some fellas got into his house and killed him. We don't know, we don't know anything else at all about it, except for he was one of these he was one of the good guys. He was one of the guys that was supposed to be doing the work to keep the people from a life of crime and violence by just patting them on the head and giving them a little bit of love. Cause was down with him. Was supposed to be down with him because he was down with the cause. Now, when that kind of tune, when that kind of gets everybody's sensitivities tuned up, even the local media is not exempt from it. So let's hear. The local media remind everybody that Baltimore is a really nasty place. And lots of bad things happen in school and in homes and just on the street. And nobody can make any sense out of it. You know why you can't make any sense out of it? Because you keep blaming white people for what's happening to black people in Baltimore. And when you get to the point where you don't feel like blaming white people anymore, you look around and go, well, I just can't figure this out. Can't figure it out. But black-on-white hostility is part of the DNA of Baltimore. We know that from the last mayor and the mayor before that and the mayor before that. Room to destroy. We know that from the city, the state's attorney. Mer what's her name? Marilyn Mosby. It's our time. Her husband's a city councilman. Same drill. Okay with the riots. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say riots? I meant uprisings. There was a story, my favorite story in Baltimore. It's called Baltimore, You're Breaking My Heart. It's about a white urban pioneer, moved into this neighborhood, looked fine in the daytime. At night, turned into a killing zone. All of a sudden, she was there for a few months, and she realized all the people in her, how many people in her immediate neighborhood within a block or two were victims of some very nasty business and how she had to borrow her neighbor's pit bull in order to walk around the corner to grab a quart of milk. And so, so she was very apologetic, and she made it very, very clear 
that, oh, no, this was not, a, this is nothing to do with race. No, I'm just talking about crime. And, you know, I'm sure white people do it too, even though I don't know, I don't really see that happening. But, uh, not, no, she was like, she said it a million times. Nothing to do with race. Damn it. Don't call me a bad name. That doesn't matter. If you talk about crime in Baltimore, you are going to get called names of the worst kind, which is what they did to her. People from NPR, people, all the Baltimore intellectuals flooded that this flooded the site and other places with the reaction to her article, which went viral. The gist of everyone was, hey, why do you as a white person have any expectation of safety in Baltimore? Nobody, no black person in Baltimore has the expectation of safety. Why do you? And by the way, how do you think all these black people got poor? How do you think they all, why do you think they all commit crime? It's because of white racism. Oh, they piled it on hot and heavy. No matter how many times that woman said, oh, please, please, I just don't, I just want black people to stop conking us over the head. And I don't even want to make it about race whatsoever. Anyway, that's how they roll in Baltimore. Let's take a, let's take a peek at the latest spasm of self-examination down there. We have a brutal beating, a shooting outside of a school, and then a stabbing at the Inner Harbor. These three violent attacks, and police say teens are involved in each case. WJZ Live at the Inner Harbor, where one of those attacks happened just yesterday. Rachel Menatoff is actually sharing reaction from Mayor Jack Young. What did he say, Rachel? Yes, Nicole, Mayor Young says these attacks are unacceptable, and he told us today that he's working hard to reach out to young people to help them secure jobs or get back into school, but that there's more to be done. This picture of a badly beaten 52-year-old man in the emergency room is circulating on social media. According to the police report WJZ obtained, the attack happened last Tuesday night. The victim was taking a shortcut through New Hope Circle in the Pleasant Gardens townhome complex when 15 boys surrounded him. He is now recovering at shock trauma. This is the first in a series of violent incidents involving teenagers. Out of nowhere, he found himself surrounded. They beat him, they punched him, they stomped him, um, and then they robbed him. This was followed by a shooting Monday afternoon on the campus shared by three Northeast Baltimore high schools. A 19-year-old student was shot in the leg outside of Achievement Academy. He's in the hospital and expected to be okay. He does appear to have been targeted. Uh, detectives do not know why. Just a few hours later, a 14-year-old was stabbed in the side after getting into an altercation with four teenage boys by the Chick-fil-A across from the Inner Harbor. He's recovering in the hospital from non-life-threatening injuries. It's really Mayor Young spoke to reporters Monday saying his office has made a dent in getting young people into jobs, but he can't do this alone. You break it with going into those neighborhoods and provide job opportunities for them, and that's what we're trying to do. And to put development over those neighborhoods that haven't seen development in decades. And that's what we're attempting to do. Oh, I love the mayor, this new mayor. It's like, mag it's like musical chairs in the mayor's office down there. So they got a new mayor, a fella, he comes in. I mean, he could have, somebody could have written the script 50 years ago, could have taken the script from the famous Elvis song in the ghetto on a cold and gray Baltimore morn. Another little baby child is born in the ghetto and his hunger burns. Because the mayor of Baltimore says everybody commits crimes because they don't have a job and they don't have economic development and gentrification in Baltimore.
Good Lord, people, aren't, isn't it kind of, at some point, isn't it kind of embarrassing? Yeah, even more embarrassing than having me sing. Isn't it embarrassing to get out there and say that? Yeah, we got to get those kids jobs. And then we're done giving them jobs. We got to have some economic development down there because they haven't had economic development in this neighborhood for a long time. Yeah, we got to do that. Yeah, okay, so let's, let's pull up the gentrification script. What happens in Baltimore when somebody wants to uh, buy a house and fix it up? What happens? What happens when some idiotic white person thinks they can move into or on the fringes of a black neighborhood with a big bank account and a contractor they can trust? What happens? Oh, no, that spreads panic through the city, especially if they see somebody jogging, especially if they see somebody walking a kid in a stroller, especially if they see somebody doing something really, really bad, like putting up a farmer's market. Well, that's a white thing. Uniformly bad. The mayor knows this. So what the mayor really was saying there when he said, we got to have jobs. There's a job for everybody out there. People are begging to hire people. Yeah, you got to show up. And it doesn't help to have a grill, $1,000 worth of dental work, shining at your potential employer. And it doesn't help to have your damn pants hanging around your butt. No, that doesn't help either, Mr. Mayor. Sorry about your little fairy tale going poof. And this economic development thing in Baltimore? Yeah. You think they're going to have you think you're going to have one of the most dark and dangerous and dirty chocolate cities in the world and you think people are going to come in and save your town with economic development. When they know full well that the people who run Baltimore believe the criminals are the victims and the victims are the true bad people. You think, I think Baltimore has a little bit of the California thing going, which is the only reason there's a lot of people doing business in Baltimore now. I don't know if this applies to Under Armour or not, but there's a couple of places headquartered in Baltimore. It's a big city. I think, uh, is Dean Witter down there in Baltimore? Anyway. California, one of the reasons that all these employers, bigger employers, stay in California is because it's, they, have, they, they just have these huge investments in these huge machines, and it's hard to move these things around, to tell you the truth. But a lot of people are sitting there looking at their leases. They have, that when their leases are going to run out, when they have to buy some new machinery, and as soon as that happens, the moving van's going to pull up. And I wonder if the same thing hasn't already happened in Baltimore. Yeah, we did a story a few months ago about how, like, you know, overnight, I forget, forget, I forget, there seems like there was one thing that started it. It wasn't even the riots. It was after the riots. The Baltimore Business Journal said, hey, anybody notice all these, like, white hipster restaurants where you sell craft beer and, and for $9 a glass? Anybody notice they're either A, going out of business, or B, they're all for sale and nobody wants to buy them? Anybody notice that? So Baltimore is like a dead city. They just don't know they're dead. And if you have any doubt about how the criminals rule Baltimore, how they walk the streets of Baltimore without fearing anybody, 
Listen to this story that just appeared in the Baltimore media just the other day. David Warren is a violent repeat offender with an extensive rap sheet who routinely seemed to evade justice. A man one family thought was about to see his luck run out. It followed their son's murder. Police found the murder weapon during a traffic stop. It was sitting right next to David Warren. It's here. Among the coral reef, a father and son forged a friendship. That's me diving. For Scott McKimmy. On a coral reef in Cozumel, Mexico. It's this sort of moment a parent holds on to. We were very close. We did a lot. When their child. He was funny. He was loud. He would give a stranger the shirt off his back. Is not around. And um, when he died, part of me died with him. Kimmy was working on a job site in Baltimore City. My son was on the back porch putting aluminum trim around a sliding glass door. These two guys start shooting at the house. The owner of the house is in the house shooting back. Brian had nowhere to hide. My son's hit three times and died right on that porch. Nine days after Brian's murder, Baltimore police posted this picture on Facebook of a bag, bullets, and a Glock. The caption read, 26-year-old man arrested with loaded handgun. There's something very wrong here. That gun killed Brian. I want to hear him say, you know what, we charged somebody. We locked somebody up and charged him with the murder of your son. But no one has been charged with Brian's murder, and it's been more than a year. Brian was number 180 of 2018. I'll never forget that number. There's a lot about his son's case Scott won't forget, like the man police arrested with the murder weapon, David Warren. Nine days after Brian's murder, officers pulled Warren over. In front of the passenger seat was a blue bag. Inside it was the Glock that killed Brian. Police arrested Warren for illegal possession of a firearm, but not for murder. You arrived at the courthouse thinking what? Even though the case that day wasn't involving, had nothing to do with my son's murder. I still wanted, number one, to see this guy. I wanted to look him in the eye. I pull up, I hop out, I put this to test. I'm going for headshots. David Warren has quite a reputation. If I want you dead, they might as well race you off the map. As a repeat violent offender. I beat 10 charges. Yeah. It's a reputation he raps about in the lyrics of his music videos posted online. I find this so funny. Blow his brains out, have him stretched out like a dummy. David Warren uh, is someone to me who's an absolute predator. During Kevin Davis's time as Baltimore's police commissioner, he held a news conference calling David Warren a hitman for hire. David Warren is a member of the 10 Grand Club in Baltimore. It's a club of people who consider themselves Hitmen for hire. Warren was wanted for shooting five people at a Memorial Day cookout. On all five attempted murder charges, Warren was found not guilty. David Warren was already notorious by the time that I had heard about him. And I had heard about David Warren from frustrated homicide detectives. Detectives who watched city prosecutors drop case after case against Warren. The first time David Warren was charged with attempted murder, he was 14 years old. Since then, he's been charged not once or even twice. David Warren has been charged with attempted murder a total of nine times. And that's just for attempted murder. Warren's rap sheet 
is 92 pages long. The city failed. We reviewed recordings from Warren's court proceedings and found in at least three attempted murder cases, prosecutors dropped charges because witnesses failed to appear in court. It's no wonder that people are afraid and, and intimidated about coming forward. That's just a human reaction to a dysfunctional criminal justice system. Out of Warren's 15 criminal cases in Baltimore City, prosecutors dropped charges in 11 of them. The last one was for the illegal possession of the gun that killed Brian, the Glock. Officers found on the car floor. Officers did not find fingerprints on the gun. So what type of message do you think this sends to the criminal? If you want to kill somebody, do it in Baltimore City and you'll probably get away with it. You know, I did a, we did a story the other day out of Kansas City, Missouri. And it was in a suburb of Kansas City. But you know what? I'm not in the suburb business. If you live, if you live outside of a big city like Baltimore or Washington, you are a suburb of that town. No, you don't get a chance. You don't. You don't get to come in here and go, "Oh, Colin, uh, we're not really, uh, you know, El, you know, we're not really part of that town. We're a whole different town." No, you are part of that town, no matter what some fool at City Hall drew on a map 150 years ago. No, every, and that's you know. So when I think of Baltimore and Washington, and even my little town of Wilmington and Philadelphia, it's all kind of one big city. It's really just one big place. But down there between Baltimore and Washington, even more so, it's just one big place, and it's kind of interchangeable. Anyway, uh, here's a story out of WUSA in Baltimore. They didn't do a video on it, but it's, uh, it's another, I mean, it's another, it's another Popeye story. I know there's dozens of them now. But I got a kick out of this one because this is WUSA. You remember just a, we referred to this like yesterday or the day before, but it came out about a week or two ago. The little girl, somebody snipped her hair. Turns out she did it herself. She blamed it on a bunch of white kids at her exclusive private school. She said they beat her. They stole her lunch. They mocked her. They said she was ugly. Turns out that was every single bit of that was one big fat lie. But the world stopped waiting for retribution on those evil white people who did that to those black kids because according to WUSA, that stuff is happening all the damn time all over the country. White people are just like picking on black girls, cutting off their hair, stealing their lunch money. Yeah, that happens. That's what WUSA said. And it was all one big fat lie built on a bunch, built on an ocean of lies. So to their credit, I think WUSA might be trying to play a little catch-up right now. Here's the headline. Man assaulted by six juveniles at Popeye's. Older male was allegedly assaulted, blah, blah, blah. We've seen that video. Man, the video I did on that old woman getting body slammed at Popeye's, I did a two-minute, I did a, like a minute video and popped it on Twitter. That thing has got like, Last I checked, it had like 450,000 views. I've come to the conclusion that media collusion is wrapped up in denial and deceit and delusion. It can't be true. Come on and get a clue. Because everybody knows white people do it too. I really like to play the knockout game Or leave your store in total disarray, disarray Don't hassle me, 
Cause all your stuff is for free I didn't do nothing anyway Amazing Even though I'm 33 I'm just another team Don't report random argy-bargy that you see on TV Cause you know through and through All you're gonna do is make the black kids angry It's not mob violence, it's just a fight Bella's blowing off a little steam Some midnight basketball will be just fine In the middle of our quiet, safe community Always getting picked on for no reason whatsoever That explains everything now until forever It really doesn't matter what happened to you Cause what they said I did, I didn't do Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team Talk about the violent fellas or the lovely lady Cause you know through and through All you're gonna do is make the black kids angry Then I did another one just two days ago and that thing's got like 250,000 views. Wow. Anyway, so the, what got my attention on this Popeye story uh, was... Uh, Montgomery County police said the victim's wife called in the assault and said her husband, who was in his 50s, was attacked by a group of six African-American juveniles all dressed in black hoodies. Wow. WUSA is going around telling everybody that black people are hurting people at Popeye's? I, I don't know. I don't know what happened down there. You know what may have happened? The same thing that happened in that Madison story. So many people, a lot of them are connected to this channel on whatever level, this platform on whatever level. Maybe they checked in and they checked out. A lot of people come back. But a lot of people now, when they see a story in the paper that they have a feeling is done by the fellas and the, and this the same reporter one day is telling everybody black people are relentless victims and the next day there's a story about a bunch of teenagers going around victimizing other people. No, they get pissed off and start sending out emails. You don't need Colin to say, hey, send emails to that reporter. Tell them they're full of BS. They do it on their own. Ditto, ditto for newspapers. I think, I think some of these news directors are starting to feel a little more than a little bit of pressure to start telling more of the truth about this black violence, especially if you're going to be one of these stations that passes along the fairy tales about black victimization any chance you get. Yeah, that kind of increases that kind of increases the reason that you have to kind of play it straight across the board. I mean, there's some, sometimes everything's just, I mean, it's too obvious. You can't ignore it. I think that's what the one of these, I think that this what this story was. It's like they said, you know what? We can't walk away from the fact that that was six fellas doing that. Because if we do, we're going to get a lot of people yelling at us and stop watching our channel. That's my, okay, that was my informed speculation. But this part is not speculation. A lot of people are writing letters to their emails to their lo and making phone calls to local reporters 
asking them what the F is up with your crappy reporting and why are you in such denial, deceit, and delusion? And when they come back with snark like that woman in Madison, Wisconsin did, oh no, that means she's going to get 10 times more letters and her news director is going to get 10 times more emails. And well, we'll see how oblivious they can remain. Why don't we go out to a neighbor, a suburb of Seattle, Washington. I think it's called Lakewood, where we did this story a couple weeks ago where a Asian business owner, good-looking woman in her 50s, she told her son she'd close up that night. 10 o'clock, fella comes in, kills her. Oh, yeah, that was an earthquake in that part of the world. But now they've got a guy who works for this Q13 in Seattle. He does the tough guy routine on all these crimes. Even though the city of Seattle is down with the cause, the state of Seattle is down with the cause, he's not down with the cause. And he, and he goes right up to the edge of letting us know what the hell's going on in Washington state. People yeah. who knew her and Absolutely. loved her. Right now we want to bring in Q13 anchor and the host of Washington's Most Wanted, David Rose. And David, I know you're looking into the suspect's case as well, or the suspects in this case. Yeah, well, I can tell you that the accused killer has gang affiliations and he is very dangerous. You know, when I'm putting together a profile of a fugitive, to try to see how they're most likely to act while they're on the run. One of the first things I do is look at their past behavior. That usually tells me what their future actions will be. And in the case of Marcus Williams, who goes by the street name Savage, he already has 16 felony convictions. No misdemeanors, all felonies, including three burglaries, numerous thefts. But the most serious was for robbery first degree when he held up a 7-Eleven store at gunpoint in 2015. Now that gun turned out to be a BB gun, but the victim didn't know that at the time. He was on supervision with the Department of Corrections, and as Steve said, Lakewood police were hoping to arrest him today when he showed up for a regular check-in with his probation officer. Of course, that didn't happen. You're looking at a callous criminal who even bragged to a friend after the McCord Mart robbery, saying they had pulled off a lick. That's slang for jacking someone to get easy money. And when he found out that Incho had died, the court documents say he didn't care. He refused to surrender, even though a friend encouraged him to do the right thing. So the concern here is that this is not a guy with a lot of resources. His job is to rob people. He's going to need to commit more crimes to stay on the run. He's got nothing to lose now, so he should be considered armed and dangerous. One more look at Marcus Williams. Call 911 immediately if you spot him. Now, if you know this guy, maybe you're a girlfriend of one of his fellow gang members or you know somebody who knows him and you want to stay anonymous. Crime Stoppers of Tacoma Pierce County. They're offering a cash reward of up to $1,000. You will stay anonymous. Call 1-800-222-TIPS or use that P3TIPS app. Get the information to the officers. Most likely, he has hunkered down in somebody's garage or he's with one of his criminal buddies helping him hide. But there's a ton of DOC officers out with the Community Response Unit. Lakewood police are out in force looking for him right now, and the FBI is even involved in this case. Uh, 16 felony convictions, though. I mean, why was this guy free? Doesn't Washington have a three-strikes law? We do have a three-strikes law, but, you know, Washington's a great state to be a criminal. And here's why. You have to commit very serious robberies. I'm talking assault first degree. I'm talking robbery first degree. You have to seriously hurt somebody in order to get a third strike. It doesn't happen very often. I can only count a handful of times in the last 12 years of Washington's Most Wanted where we've seen somebody go away uh, for something serious. So Marcus Williams is not looking at a third strike. He is looking, however, at a second strike here. And of course, he's wanted for murder in the first degree. So let's help get him off the street. Keep an eye out. This is guy's dangerous. Yeah. Just another fella. 
with a long record of crime and violence back out on the street because the people who run the criminal justice system in the state of Washington are down with the cause. They do believe there are too many black people in prison for no reason whatsoever. So why do we want to keep them there? Let's just let them out. They're not going to do anything, aren't they? You know, let's head down to Florida. This is kind of a small, this is kind of small potato by Orlando by Orlando uh, standards. Just a couple of fellas raping a white girl, coming in from her walking a dog in a nice neighborhood. And they kind of let out little, little bits of information as they go along, which maybe they just assume we all know and we don't really care about. But what we learn is that these guys have very, very, very long records of crime and violence. They've been caught. Cops know who they are. They know their M.O., but the one thing they don't ask, let alone answer, is if that's the case, what are they doing on the streets? Orlando police say they have caught the man who followed a woman into her Lake Eola Heights home last month and attacked her. The suspect turned himself in overnight after police say DNA linked him to the crime. But as Channel 9's Steve Barrett reports, there's still another suspect out there for a similar attack nearby. Police say that they're happy to have the man that was depicted in this sketch right here behind bars. They say that they're confident that they have the right man, a man the victim believes followed her from walking her dog over here in this park down the street to her apartment. For weeks, police only had a sketch of a violent suspect whose crime they say was thwarted. Today, that sketch has been replaced with a new, closely matching mugshot of a man a victim believes tried to rape her. This morning, at a little before 3 a.m., he turned himself in at the Orange County Sheriff's Office, and he has been taken into custody. Good afternoon. Your name, sir? Michael Scarlett. This afternoon, Michael Scarlett appeared before a judge facing charges of kidnapping and burglary with battery. He's accused of trying to force his way into the victim's apartment with his hand over her mouth as she returned home from walking her dog around Lake Eola Park. When neighbors intervened, the suspect fled, leaving a spilled cup of coffee, a hat, and a shoe behind. The DNA evidence was part of the complete investigation. It was a big part of, of the investigation, um, but all of the pieces have to come together. The DNA in and of itself cannot uh, solve the case. Police say it's no time for residents around Lake Eola to take their guard down as the search continues for James Caliste. He's the suspect in a rape that happened on Jefferson Street nine days ago. And he is considered a violent offender. Um, we don't want you doing anything other than letting the police take him into custody. And it looks like Michael Scarlett is going to remain behind bars during a court hearing today. A judge denied him bond. For you know, here's another weird story out of San Jose. Weird be for the same. Weird for the same reason that the story out of WUSA is weird. They actually are going to identify the perps. Well, Julie Frank, a family friend and a neighbor of the victim, believes the victim was followed. He had just gotten home from the gas station when he was confronted. As soon as he parked the car. There was this other car that drove by and stopped. There's three guys that came out, uh, hooded. Home surveillance video captures a suspect getting out of a black Honda Accord, rapidly approaching a white car parked on Threadneedle Way in San Jose, gun in hand. Sitting inside that car was Hobie Kao's so, friend and neighbor. One that was pointing a gun at my friend and said that, hey, you know, I want your stuff. And basically, I think my friend said no, and then they just shot him twice. 
Shot twice in the abdomen. You see in the video, two other suspects get out. One of them retreats back to the car when shots are fired. Another suspect snatches a necklace the victim is wearing. The suspect's car quickly takes off. My friend was able to actually get up and run into the house. The victim, a man in his mid-30s, was taken to regional medical center and is now recovering from his wounds. The violent confrontation happened on November 2nd, just before 4 in the afternoon, and took less than 20 seconds. We showed the video to neighbor Oscar Luan. Oh my God, that's horrifying. It's scary. That's really scary. Luhan's security cameras caught the suspect's car racing out of the neighborhood. These guys had masks on. They actually had uh, bandanas covering their faces. Keo believes his friend was targeted for his jewelry. He was wearing a large gold necklace with a jade Buddha face, likely worth $5,000. Keo believes the thieves aren't from the area and have done this before. They have a purpose. They want your stuff. And so they'll do whatever it takes to take your stuff. Just lucky that you know, they didn't take his life. Well, police say the suspects are described as three African-American men. I mean, what is this, Christmas? We're getting all these Christmas presents. The reporters are looking in the cameras, not afraid to tell us who's committing the crime and the violence against, in this case, I think that was an Asian kid. I'm not sure why anybody would want to wear a $5,000 necklace. I'm not sure what kind of skill it takes to look at somebody wearing a necklace and go, Apparently, this is what happened. See him, they saw him at a gas station, or maybe they knew him or something, and they look at the guy and go, hey, that's, that's, not, that's not like one of those $10 fake necklaces that Colin would buy. No, that's a real thing. That's a $5,000 necklace. And here all this time, I thought gentlemen were only supposed to wear two pieces of jewelry, a wedding ring and a watch. This dude's wearing a necklace. The fashion police come along and strip it off of them? Maybe that's what it was. It was the fashion police. So offended by this guy walking around in a $5,000 necklace. Well, that's not what happened, but uh, it's, it's really, they're putting it on a new level. If, that, if what they're saying is true, they just, tar I mean, there's only two ways this crime happened. A, they spotted him and followed him home. Or B, these fellas were just out driving around and they saw somebody they didn't know in the car. Take your choice. Here's a little thing somebody sent me. It's called the UMC Channel. Urban Movie Channel. In case you had any thoughts about thinking that urban actually didn't, wasn't synonymous with black, they straightened it out there right away. They do a promo, mostly music, a little bit of black people uh, singing and fighting with each other. Uh, but on the, as uh, the, they don't say it, but on the words they'll say it's all black all the time. Whoa! Mm, Sunday, oh. wish I can have you on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Okay. All right. All I could say is, whatever. But this, must, this much must be said. If you're raising the bar on this racial identity all over the country, if you're raising the bar about how much black people are separate in every phase of their life, large and small, don't get all pissed off when good old Colin rolls around and goes, hey, what about that black criminality so wildly out of proportion? What about those 100 indicators of health, welfare, and violence? Where if it's supposed to be up, you're down. If it's supposed to be down, you're up. What's up with that? 
Am I going to get some answers to that on the Urban Movie Channel, except that it's all the blame of that fat white cop writing you a ticket somewhere? Sit down, Mom. I'm just getting started. Don't talk to me like that. Which is what I saw on the clip there. Whatever. That's good. I guess that should be the new name of this podcast. The Whatever Podcast. All right. You know, this could be this could be the heavy lifting we're going to hear right now. So we don't do stories on black child abuse around. We just don't. I don't do stories on black child abuse because I don't want to do them. You don't want to hear them. But we could do them many, many a day. But the fact, but here's the but the problem with not doing the stories is we get trolls on Twitter going, yeah, what about all the white child abuse? Okay, oh, man. So we leave a little hole, and they drive a truck through it. Well, black child abuse is a thing. We talked about the woman who wrote a book about it being a black thing. We remind people that black people do not report crime against other black people, such as child abuse and rape. Because remember what the Huffington Post said, quote, Black women are trained at an early age to protect the race at all costs. And so now one of my buddies called me up today and said, hey, did you hear, you got any, uh, you know, what's, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm working on what maybe is the worst case of child abuse in Philadelphia anybody's ever heard. And he started reeling off all these cases. And I kept saying, no, no, worse than that, worse than that. It's worse than the father using his 11-month-old daughter as a shield during a gunfight? Oh, yeah, it's worse than that. And he kept, yeah, it's worse than that, worse than that, worse than that, worse than that. It's worse than all of them, says the district attorney. Jim, the mother tells me tonight that guardian is her god sister. She is blaming herself tonight for this whole ordeal. Of course, investigators rushed out here to Folsom Street about two weeks ago. Then they were told that little girl fell out of a second-story window. Tonight, we're learning that wasn't the case. I never thought I was going to walk in the hospital and see her face like that. I thought that's what I was going to see. It's the way Jasmine Singleton wants to remember her daughter, Zaya. The four-year-old was killed in one of the worst cases of child abuse investigators say they've ever seen. At first, they were told the little girl fell out of a second-story bedroom window on Folsom in Fairmont last month. I blame myself, to be honest. I deal with this every day, and nobody will understand the pain that I go through every day, knowing that I'll never see my daughter again. She blames herself because she let Samaya Brown watch her daughter for the last two years. The 38-year-old lied about Zaya's death, according to investigators. They say the girl had bite marks, open cuts on her face and head, and cigarette burns on her arms. They say Brown used homemade stitches to fix her wounds. Abused her, stitched her up, abused her again, stitched her up, abused her again, stitched her up, burnt her with some kind of scalding liquid. Singleton tells NBC10 she had an agreement with Brown solidified with a notarized letter. She claims she would get her daughter back after she got her life together and says she's been looking for Zaya for the last year. I want to know why did you do this to my kid? Because at the end of the day, that was my daughter. Like she got brothers and sisters out here that will never see her again. You can hear the pain in her voice. Once again, this was an agreement between the mother and her god sister. She tells me she was never in the system. That's not the worst one we've heard of. The worst one we've heard of includes babysitting, kidnapping, blowtorches, 
for hours. There's a lot of them. So there, you got we got through legs day. Leg day. It was tough. I know a lot of you guys don't like to hear some of these real nasty stories. I don't like talking about them that much either, but we have to do them once in a while just to remind people of the reality out there. Just kind of like get you recharged up to remind you what the stakes are, how important all this is, this vast gap between what we hear on television and what real life is, and how people who are in denial, deceit, and delusion about this vast gap can do so much damage, so, uh, present so much danger to people who are not aware of that gap. So that's what we do here. We expose the greatest lie of our generation, the greatest hoax of our lifetime, black victimization, white racism. Proud to be doing it with you. Thanks, thanks you guys for being so patient with me as we go through this. Sometimes on emails, I'm a little short with people. Somebody got mad at me today for being a little short with them. Sorry about that. But I guess on the flip side, at least I didn't make any black kids angry. Talk to you tomorrow.